humans. Hello, hello. How are you today? This is your host of Ellie 2.0. That would be me, Ellie. I am thrilled to be back occupying a portion of your brain for at least a few minutes, uh, maybe even a whole half hour that this show is to go. Um, I am uh, also equally hopeful that we are getting past uh, this horrible, horrible spring that we have been having. I don't even think spring is the right word for it. Um, but here we are. LE 2.0, recall that this show is about idealism, what I also call practical idealism, and my work as a practical idealist. In my A slot today, I want to talk about someone I'm calling a reluctant idealist who became famous as a 13-year-old plaintiff in one of the most famous Supreme Court cases of all time. I'm speaking of Linda Brown, the named plaintiff in Brown versus Board of Education, a ruling, rulings, there were two rulings in, that are titled Brown versus Board of Education, one handed down in 1954, and then a second called Brown, Brown II, handed down in 1955. Uh, you, in fact, you may have heard that Linda Brown recently passed away on March 25th at the age of 75. Now, the oddity about Brown versus Board of Education is that the case did not arise in what we would consider the traditional Jim Crow South. And instead, it actually arose, that's a lawyer talk there, in Topeka, Kansas. Um, but the reality is, in the, in the early 50s and certainly into the 60s, and heck, some would say even into today, um, much of America's schools were segregated. Uh, that includes the schools, some of the schools in Topeka. Um, and it may be that, that, that it was Topeka versus the Deep South why um, the Brown family was selected to be a plaintiff. The case really began in 1950 when the NAACP began recruiting families to challenge school segregation. So the NAACP was very powerful back then. It still is powerful, but back then it really was the go-to for civil rights for black people. And as it turns out, um, Linda Brown's father, a man named Oliver Brown, was quite upset about the fact that his then eight-year-old daughter um, couldn't attend the white elementary school that was located just four blocks from their home. And instead... Linda Brown had to walk through a railroad yard across to, and then across a busy avenue to get to a bus stop that would take her then to a school that was two miles away. Linda Bra the Brown family actually lived in a fairly uh, integrated neighborhood. Linda Brown played, played with Latino and white kids along with black kids. The NAACP worked it so that 13 families attempted to enroll children in white elementary schools, not only in Topeka, but in other cities across the country. And just by the luck of draw of the draw, um, Linda Brown's name, the Brown family name, was at the top of the list of those 13, because when you file a case in, with the Supreme Court, or actually with any court system, and you have multiple plaintiffs, they usually start with the highest in the alphabetical order. And Brown happened to be the um, highest alphabetical name, and that's how 
Brown got the top of the list, and that's how the case became known as Brown versus Board of Education. By the time the Supreme Court decided uh, the cases in 1954 and 55, Linda Brown was a junior in high school. So the case was decided, as you may recall, Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court announced in the most, I believe, the most famous and far-reaching decision that, quote-unquote, separate but equal education was unconstitutional because it violated uh, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. It also violated other things uh, within the Constitution. Um, and it uh, violated uh, equal protection as well under the Constitution. That would also be the 14th Amendment. And, and, um, and as it turns out, um, the case had ramifications across the country. It did. And it set a chain reaction into place that I think ultimately led to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Movement, which then also led uh, to the, a growing black middle class in America because uh, more and more black kids were being able to, and other kids from marginalized communities like Latinas and Asians, were able to attend school, quality schools, and then get a foothold, at least on the economic ladder. I have a, I do say when, in my trainings that I believe that education is the great leveler. As for Linda Brown, later in her life, her family moved to Springfield, Missouri. Um, then uh, the family moved back after Oliver Brown died. Um, her mother moved the family back to Kansas. Linda Brown later attended Washburn and Kansas State Universities. I call her a reluctant idealist because she later, Linda Brown later complained that the media had, ca had um, exploited her um, as it tried to talk about the Brown v. Board of Education case. Even though she had that sentiment about being exploited, it did not keep her from then going back into the fray as an adult. And in 1979, she joined not with the NAACP, with the, but instead with the American Civil Liberties Union to again take on uh, Topeka, the Topeka School District, because the claim was that notwithstanding the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court some 20 some years earlier, the Topeka schools were still segregated. That, uh, that case ended up in the Court of Appeals. Uh, and ultimately, the uh, Topeka schools did um, integrate even further. They built, I believe, four new schools in order to comply with that uh, court order. For her life, uh, Linda Brown had married. She had a family, and she was an educational consultant as well as a circuit speaker. She was active in her church where she taught children to play the piano. And at the time of her death, she was applauded by uh, the Kansas governor, Jeff Coyler, at Cloyer, excuse me, as someone who um, was an ordinary human who had um, the ability to change the course of American history. That's Linda Brown. Now, you may have also heard about how Brown versus Board of Education con continues to surface in our today world. And more recently, just a couple of weeks ago, you may have um, 
heard or read about a nominee for federal judgeship in Louisiana, Wendy Vitter, who, during her congressional hearing, now remember, judicial nominees uh, for federal, the federal bench all are subject to confirmation by the Senate, which means the Senate has the right to question um, each of those nominees. And Wendy Vetter, who um, is a nominee, uh, a lawyer, and um, a nominee to be a judge in Louisiana, went through questioning, and she was asked if she agreed with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Now, Wendy rationalized when, when Vitter, when she replied, she commented, she said that if she commented on one case, she feared that it would be a slippery slope to talking about all other cases. And she would not say, she refused to say if she agreed with the ruling, with the holding in Brown versus Board of Education that separate but equal is unconstitutional. Now, I'm a lawyer, among other things, and I to a certain extent, get Vitter's fear about the slippery slope. But you know, not all judicial nominees are afraid to say, yep, I agree with Brown versus Board of Education. In fact, Neil Gorsuch, the most conservative appointee to the Supreme Court, you may recall he was appointed last year, he was the quote-unquote Republicans pick because they refused to allow hearings for a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of President Obama's administration. Even Neil Gorsuch, the conservative appointee, said that he supported Brown versus Board of Education. In some ways, Vitter's refusal to um, agree that Brown versus Board of Education is still good law um, reflects how our country, how far it has fallen back. Um, you know, and because uh, this show is taped, I have no idea whether this, the Senate Judiciary Committee will confirm Vitter or not. But if you ask me, any hesitation about Brown is a big red warning sign for our country. Um, and it's also proof that um, judicial nominee Wendy Vitter is nowhere close to being an idealist. And don't you think that it sure helps to have idealists on our bench, people who understand that it is possible for the world to be better. That's the end of our first slot, Slot A. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0, a different kind of radio show, one that taps into the idealism that all of us have where we long for a better, more inclusive world. When we come back, I'll bring in my B-slot. Thank you. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. 
Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of eatlocalminnesota.com. More than just a website, eatlocalminnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. The award-winning Hazel's Northeast combines the feel of a small-town diner with the vibrant nature of its Northeast Minneapolis neighborhood. Whether it's breakfast, lunch, weekend brunch, or dinner, their classically inspired and creatively prepared American comfort food is always made from scratch. Hazel's Northeast at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis. EatLocalMinnesota.com the dedicated staff at Nightingale Restaurant take pride in presenting a thoughtful and delicious approach to food and drink, whether you're visiting for dinner, happy hour, or brunch. Their focus on made-from-scratch meals using sustainable and local ingredients is likely to make Nightingale your go-to spot for inspired food and drinks. Nightingale, Lindell and 26th in Minneapolis. Hi, I'm Damian Strange, Executive Director of Northeast Minneapolis Arts Association, NEMA. And I'm personally inviting you to Arter World, May 18th through the 20th. View artwork of over 650 artists in every medium at more than 50 locations throughout Northeast Minneapolis, including studio buildings, art galleries, homes, storefronts, and local businesses. The Artist Open Studio Tour may include demonstrations, mini workshops, installations, and special exhibitions. Studio tours offer a great opportunity to ask questions, discuss techniques, experience art firsthand, and purchase unique artwork directly from artists. Arter World gives you a unique opportunity to meet the artists who make our community so vibrant and invest in our art community by purchasing artwork that you connect with. For more information, go to nema.org. That's nema.org. Looking forward to seeing you at Arter World. to 2.0 where we talk about idealism and you get to listen to me Ellie Krug a practical idealist I am not ashamed of that status in fact it's officially in my bio that I'm a hopeless idealist so there you go I just reported on Linda Brown whom I termed a reluctant idealist because she became the face of desegregation owing not to a voluntary decision on her part but because her parents decided when she was eight years old that she was going to get be put put in that role and I get I do get why she may have felt later in life that the focus on her was too much the truth is that being idealistic carries great weight and with it comes a price um, to be clear you're listening to me Ellie I'm a very willing idealist I've been um, this way my entire life um, it has always been there, but but when I lived as a man, now remember, listeners, I happen to be transgender. That's why the voice sounds like a man. And my name is Ellie. And if you're on Facebook Live right now, you're looking at a blonde, 
chick with long hair、um, wrapped in a sweater because it's cold down here in the bunker where I'm taping this. But I've always been, I have always been an,、uh, an idealist. When I lived as a man, it had to be under the surface. It was not very practical for me to be an idealist as an attack dog trial lawyer in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where I represented railroads and trucking companies. Long story, buy my book. You can figure out about that. But when I transitioned genders in 2009 and I got to be me, Ellie, then I decided I'm going to be. Also, that idealist that's always been lurking under the surface. So,、um, not only did I come out as female, I also came out as idealistic. How do you like that as an idealist? Yet, as I said, there is a price to pay. I share this not to be woe is me or to feel sorry for me, but rather to just lay it out there because everything takes work. Even idealism. So here I am at age 61, finding myself ramping up when most of my contemporaries are ramping down. This is one of、uh, two radio shows. I, I'm doing not one, but two radio shows on this station, each of which has a different bend. My other radio station is hit, or show is Hidden Edges Radio. On Sundays from 1 to 2, and that's where I highlight stories about grit and resiliency by humans.、Um, and in fact, I was up at 3 this morning to prepare for this show.、Um, now, yes, I ended up going back to sleep, but it's the pressure of getting things done that gets me, wakes me up at 3 o'clock. And frankly, to do a show like this,、uh, this is a half hour show. It takes at least two to, two to four hours of prep. And to do a one hour show, the one that I do on Sunday, is four to five to six hours worth of prep to do one hour. On top of that, I write a monthly column for Lavender Magazine, an LGBTQ bi weekly magazine here in the Twin Cities, which is well regarded.、Um, and I've also been a big sister to a A girl for nearly five and a half years, starting when she was seven. She is now nearly 13.、Um, and for the last year, that's involved weekly outings where I find myself coaching her about being really smart and having a good heart. And in fact, I think I'm the only, the only adult that, has, is, that tells her that. I am. And it's important that I'm in her life, and that takes time. And all of what I've just told you is extra. Because it's ancillary to what my real job is, what I'm really trying to do as an idealist in this world, which is to speak and train on human inclusivity.、Um, in its most basic sense, inclusivity is the extent to which a human feels as if they matter. And,、um, you know, and、uh, we need that where we are in our world right now. We do. And my training includes on how to be a good ally to a marginalized person, how to welcome transgender people in a workplace organization, how men and how men can be more aware of and supportive of, how they, of women.、Um, because let me tell you, and that's a whole different talk,、uh, the world is way different over on this side of the equation than when I lived as a man. I'm on a plane two to four times a month. Sometimes、uh, coming up in May, I think I'm going to be on a plane about 10 times.、Um, in March, 
just last month, I spoke directly, like standing in front of nearly 1,500 people. I've got 28 trainings or talks between now and when um, the end of June comes. And easily, I'm spending 70 hours, if not more, a week on all of what I've just described for you. Now, I'm loving most of it, but it is a lot at the age of 61. And again, please understand, this is not woe is me. I am doing all of this voluntarily. But why do I do it? I don't do it for aggrandizement. I can tell you that. I'm pretty good. I had 17 years of therapy with a dozen therapists. I'm pretty good in my head as it relates to Ellie. I'm a good person. I know that. I'm not doing it for ego. You know, my ego is relatively healthy, but if you meet me, you'll find that I'm very humble and so grateful just to be around. And I'm not doing it for the money, although um, I have to watch that because the money is actually getting better. And I need to watch uh, it because um, we all have fear about um, failing, about being out on the street, I, even me. And I have to watch that the money doesn't become far more important or, or more focused for me. I become more focused on it. Why do I do it, really? I do all of what I've just described to you for impact. You know, literally, I do it on the slight chance that my words will cause a listener to think differently, that they will be more open to humans, to other humans, more open to the concept of quote-unquote other. I do it because I really want this world to become a better place. I want, I want us to get past all of the crap that is dragging us down. I do. Um, and I know no other way to do it than to simply do the things that I'm doing right now. In many ways, I, you know, and, and some listeners have heard me say this before, I feel like I am a struggling rock musician playing, you know, B-clubs, waiting to be discovered, waiting for that one song that I have to become the hit that everyone wants to play or hear. I'm waiting for my message about compassion for others and for self, my message about the need to understand the four commonalities, which I can't get into right at the moment, the need to be willing to face our fears, to get to be willing to become familiar with other people. That collective message, I'm waiting for it to be discovered. Because, I mean, you hear it, it's being played by other, other musicians, quote-unquote. But no one has got the, um, the hit, so to speak. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting so that my idealism can occupy as many brains as possible that my message can resonate with as many people as possible. So, listener, how am I doing? How am I doing with this show? I'm four months in. Is this grabbing you at all? I mean, I have no idea. I'm just sitting here um, speaking into a mic, looking at a computer that's got a time clock on it, and looking through the window at my wonderful producer, Brett Johnson. But I have no idea, as I say these words, that any of you even care. I don't, frankly. Don't worry. 
it's not going to deter me because I'm an idealist and it's, it's to my core, I will be this way to the moment I die. But, you know, I would love to hear from you. I would love to know whether this show or any of the other work that I do makes any difference to you because every once in a while it is good to hear from people um, for moral support. And I think we all want that. So, and, I, and I'm still waiting for that very first email to come to my email for at le2.oradio at gmail.com. That's le2.oradio at gmail.com. Be the first to email me. I'd love to hear from you. You know, we all have this idealist bend in us. We do. We all have, um, but it's in varying degrees, of course. And for many people, it's just so it's just so buried that they'll never be able to scratch it. Um, and I know um, for others, um, we all have, well, for almost all of us, we all have empathetic hearts. It's just a matter about unleashing those hearts. I'm here to give you permission to do that. I am. I'm here to give you permission to be empathetic towards others. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the few transgender radio hosts in the world, as I like to say, with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. If you like what you've enjoyed, email me at ellie2.0radio at gmail.com. Revisit my website at elliekrug.com. I have a wonderful monthly newsletter. Go to the website, sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. People love it. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. You rock, Brett. I'll be back next week with another segment about an idealist and about my work. Thanks so very much. Bye.